If so, Invent Health has information to help you get started. Invent Health is America's largest inventor service firm with sales offices in major cities nationwide. Call this toll-free number now to see how to get this free information. The information includes a form for confidentiality and to record and date your idea, plus material. I went out walking through streets paved with gold. Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you. I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face. and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who can't watch the show through television, normal television means, they can go to www.hotm.tv, click on streaming, and watch the show from anywhere in the world. We welcome our YouTube viewers who watch through streaming, um, the, uh, streaming viewers, um, archive viewers, Whoever you are, we welcome you. Glad you're here with us. I was a born-again Mormon. The book that started it all is available on a free downloadable PDF. Go to www.iwasabornagainmormon.com, uh, excuse me, bornagainmormon.com, and you can click on that and download a free PDF if you'd like. If you don't have a computer, we're working on getting the hard copies out there and available. How about a moment in history? We try to cover a point here and there. July 1967, a priest at Bolton from church headquarters came out and prohibited LDS women from praying in sacrament meeting. The practice changed in the late 1970s. I remember when it happened and the first woman since 1967 got up in sacrament meeting and actually was able to give uh, invocation. Uh, they couldn't give the benediction, the closing prayer. They could only give the invocation at that time. But I remember as a kid that happening and there being kind of a hush. Look, the first woman getting up and doing it. Uh, interesting, just for your information. Well, my friends, we truly had a blessed day on Saturday at Burning Heart 09, the Big Tent Revival. Our statisticians tell me there were somewhere between seven and 900 people who joined us for an evening of fun, fellowship, worship, and commitments to Jesus. Jeremiah's fire warmed us up with some exceptional music. Pastor Kevin Kennington exhibited the strength of the Lord by busting blocks of wood in half with his bare hands. And um, Adam's Road inspired the crowd with their unique musical testimony of how God led them out of Mormonism, all of them uh, LDS missionaries, uh, and into the arms of a relationship with Jesus Christ. I spoke about making a choice for the Lord. Then we ended the night with, with what can only be described as a uh, glorious revival-like baptism event where uh, our count is 20 people of all walks and backgrounds came forth and publicly uh, pro professed their faith and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of them touched me personally as uh, I was familiar with many of their personal stories. But to all, it was also a beautiful sight to see people come out of the crowd fully clothed and step into this cold pool of water and be baptized in Jesus' name. Uh, the Lord uh, particularly blessed uh, me personally in the end as my own middle daughter, Cassidy Sean McCraney, came forward and submitted her person to our God and King through baptism. He is faithful even when we are not. He is good even when we fail. He is worthy of all honor and praise. I thank and praise him for all he has done in the past, 
all he is presently doing and all that I know that he will continue to do for all of us in the future. Let's see some photos through a slide presentation.
want to thank our brother Sean Larson for all those wonderful photographs and for everybody who worked on putting that together. It's a lot of work. Um, speaking of things the Lord is doing and continuing to do, uh, on October 31st, Halloween night, a Saturday night, Aletheia Ministries is launching uh, a live call-in television program for teens. Uh, we've called it the Gray Generation, and we think it's going to be entertaining and informative, but something that uh, every teen needs in this A of twisted ideologies and strange values. Uh, you might recall that we had a casting call a few months ago to film the opening for The Gray Generation, the thing that plays at the beginning of every show. We want to show you what that looks like right now. So there it is. Be ready for the great generation. We're excited for it. Listen, we need volunteers who are willing to come and be with us through the production of the show. Because it's airing live, we hope it's going to have a national audience at some point in time. We're going to be streaming video. We're using Twitter. We're using Facebook. We're using instant messaging. We're using smoke signals. We're using everything possible. Uh, and we need to have camera crew. We need uh, volunteer operators. We need runners, grips, stage managers, roadies, people to bring me ice water. You know all those regular things. Hair, makeup. Uh, so if you're interested, and we hope that you're a teen or a college-age person, or you're interested in film, video, television, uh, set design, if you're interested, we would love to have you become part of our crew. But you need to make a commitment to come and join us on Saturday nights. And so we're going to have a first volunteer meeting for this program on uh, Saturday, uh, October 3rd. We're meeting here at the studio, TV 20 at 11 a.m. It's there on your screen. You can get the address for uh, TV 20 um, somehow. Go to our website and you'll be able to get it that way. All right, why do we do what we do? What is our bottom line hope? If we step back to the start of this ministry, we can see uh, what promoted us to start this ministry and what our hope has always been. And that is to see people, but especially Latter-day Saint people, experience spiritual rebirth. To understand spiritual rebirth without having been spiritually reborn is like, trying to understand, is like trying to understand what it would be like to have someone you love die when you have never had someone you love die. You really, you can kind of get an idea, people can explain it to you, but you really don't know what spiritual rebirth is like until you have experienced it. Okay, well, because of this, people often ask, well, what happens when you're spiritually reborn? Or how can I tell if I am? Often LDS people, because they have not experienced spiritual rebirth, they make comments like, I am born again because I'm LDS. Or they misinterpret spiritual rebirth and they reclassify it, saying things like, I obey the commandments. That's how I can tell I'm spiritually reborn. Or I feel good inside about my life and my family or my husband or my children or about the direction of my life. And they equate that to spiritual rebirth. I recently read an article, and in that article uh, there was a quote that perhaps best describes what occurs in the life of a person when they experience spiritual regeneration. It was from the French uh, mathematician, philosopher, and thinker Blaise Pascal, 
who spent much of his adult life defending the idea that there was a God through logic and reason and just sound uh, logic. And he came up with uh, is known, something that's known as Pascal's Wager. Most Christians are familiar with that. And, that was, and Pascal's Wager is basically says something like this. Your bet is far better to bet that there is a God than to believe that there's not. That's a real summary of Pascal's Wager. But anyway, he had a very logical way of approaching God as he grew older. Well, after he died, they found a note that he hand wrote in and it was sewn into one of his winter coats. And the parchment describes what happens when the belief or the logical knowledge of God goes from the head to the heart. And Pascal describes this event in his own life himself on this parchment. It reads, quote, Year of Grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November, Feast of St. Clement. From about half past 10 at night to about half an hour after midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certitude, heartfelt joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. May I never be separated from him. Have you experienced the event in your life where you cannot help but worship, praise, and rejoice over Jesus? My friends, my brothers and sisters, we do not care where you presently attend church. God will guide where he wants his children to be. But you have to become his child first. Our prayer is that above anything else, in spite of everything else, you have experienced something or you will experience something as profound as the genius Frenchman Blaise Pascal. We want you to know that if you have been born again, but remember Jesus himself said, it must happen in order for you to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Our goal, our hope is that everyone will be born again. And with that, let's have a prayer. Lord, we come to you and we petition you and thank you and praise you. You are our God and King. We pray for our live audience here, our studio audience. Uh, we pray for our audience at home, wherever they may be in this world, that your spirit will touch them and that you will communicate your spirit to theirs and draw them and have them hear and unclog their eyes and ears and, and hearts that they may believe and be healed. We pray for this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week when Adam's Road was on the set, we received a call from a Latter-day Saint who ended, ended his comments with something like to the effect of, quote, salvation is not a matter of grace alone, but a matter of grace and works. And he said, anyone who reads the epistle of James will see for themselves that this is true. Well, because we were on a tight schedule that night, I didn't have the time to answer that question. I had to, he kind of got it in there and I just kind of had to go on because we had some things planned for Adam's Road. And I received a handful of emails from LDS people that asked me why I dodged this caller. Some suggested that he had confounded me and others said that I was afraid of someone who finally speaks the truth. Anyone who has ever had a discussion with a Latter-day Saint about salvation knows that sooner or later within the discussion, somehow that quote from James is going to come up, faith without works is dead. Okay, it comes up in almost every discussion. I think it's such a knee-jerk retort that it's possible that the Latter-day Saints, if they could do a consensus, know that verse, faith without works is dead, better than any other verse in the Bible, and they use it in a way that I'm going to show you tonight is completely errant. All right. Anyway, even though we are in the middle of examining Doctrine and Covenants section 132, which was Joseph Smith's revelation on polygamy, plural marriage, I think it's extremely important uh, 
to expose or explain this doctrinal topic in the Christian Mormon dialogues. And I want to take a moment to share how badly these verses in James have been manipulated and misinterpreted by the LDS who are bent on selling what Paul called another gospel. So go grab your Bibles if you can. Turn to James chapter 2 before we open up the phone lines. It will help immeasurably in your comprehension of this book and the LDS misuse of it when they claim it. You can find James as one of the last books of the Bible, and it's right before the epistle of Peter. Now, as you're getting your Bibles, try to remember a couple things. There are probably two or three dozen rules you use to sound exegetical study of the Bible, to sound hermeneutics. These are all big words that Bible guys use, and it's just there are rules when you're reading the Bible on how to interpret it and understand it. And one of the biggest rules is the Bible speaks truth, and because it speaks the truth, it will not contradict itself. Okay, so if the Bible says one thing in one place, and then it says another thing in another place that appears contradictory, the contradiction is based in context. What is being said and why? Not that there's a, a contradiction. I have yet to see someone uh, uh, write a, or send me a, a contradiction that cannot be explained, and it's not being explained away. It's just being explained through the setting or context of what's being happened. Differences in the, in the scripture does not mean contradiction. Therefore, if the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are ye saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, and it's there up on the screen, I quickly paraphrased it, it also, and it also says in James 2.17, even so faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. There is a reasonable explanation of how those two marry each other. You're either saved by grace alone, not of works, or faith has to come hand in hand with this idea of works, which in the LDS mind is doing all these things to save yourself. All right. Aside from praising men, and I don't mean that sarcastically, I mean that they want men to be better men within Mormonism, they, th their favorite scripture activity is to cherry pick. That means to pick out verses like this and to say, you know, it says in James, faith without works is dead. How do you say you're saved by grace when it says that? And it's a cherry pick. Um, when the context of the passage is not taken into account and used in the discussion correctly, it ought to just be discarded. You should at least have the 2020 rule when you're reading a passage. That means 20 verses back, at least 20, if not 50 verses back, and then 50 verses forward to understand why this was being said at this point. Pulling out a verse and using it like that is like taking Beethoven's fifth and just playing one key. Or it's like a jet, uh, a 747 wanting to fly, but it's missing its wings, its tail, and its, uh, and its landing gear, okay? It, it just doesn't have all the parts, and you can't do that with the Bible. You have, that's why there's Bible scholars who study beginning and end. That's why we're commanded as Christians to study the entire Bible and don't just pick a single passage or two or three to justify your position. So let's read from James chapter two about faith, faith and works. And I promise you, uh, before we go to the phones, you will understand what it says. First of all, James set the stage for the context of this chapter by talking about how Christians need to treat the poor. Now remember that. And ask yourself, why is James prefacing his chapter two? It wasn't a chapter at that time, but why is James prefacing this with how Christians should teach the poor? James 2, 1 says, my brethren, so it's to Christians of whom he's speaking, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. He's saying don't respect people based off what they appear like, if they're wealthy or if they're poor or uh, whatever. He says, and he gives you an example in verse 2. He says, For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that wears the fine clothing, and say to him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there and sit under my footstool. He, James goes on to say, are you not then partial in, your, your, in yourselves and have become judges of evil thoughts? 
Okay. In other words, he says, don't look on people and prefer them because they are dressed or wealthy. Get rid of partiality. Stop giving preferential treatment to some people. Love, receive, and accept all people equally. Then he says in verse five through seven, hearken my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the things of this world, chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to them that love him. But you, he says, have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats. So he's talking about, he says, you're despising the poor. And he says, these rich people, they, they oppress you and they draw you before their judgment seats to condemn you. And then he writes in verse seven, don't they blaspheme the worthy name which you are called? In other words, he says, don't they, don't they make fun of you being a Christian? Why are you giving homage and, and, and this allegiance to these people who are rich and wealthy and wear fine clothes when they uh, treat you badly? So it seems the brethren had fallen into the despicable habit of falling all over themselves for people who are rich or well-dressed. And James reminds them of several things. God loves the poor. He chose the poor over the rich. Second, James reminds us that the rich oppress the Christians and he should not, they should not be giving them honor. And then he reminds them that they also blaspheme the name of Christ. Which they, okay, you got all that? Now he starts pulling the theme together of this entire chapter, and he says, verse 8, If you fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. So suddenly he starts talking about loving your neighbor. He says, you're not, you're not respecting these poor people, you're respecting the rich. But he says, if you obey the royal law, and it's called the royal law because it's one of the two great commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, that's the first one. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two royal laws. And he says, if you obey that, you do well. Okay? But what, what that means is tacitly he's saying, you're not doing that and you're not doing well. He goes on verse nine, but if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. He writes, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of the whole thing. People think, well, I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered. I've never uh, broken the Sabbath. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. But I did steal something once. James says, you're guilty of the whole law. The whole entire thing. You are a murderer if you steal because the law comes as one package. You either obey the law or you... Don't obey the law, okay? So that, that's what he says, and he says, and he adds on to that, and he says, do not commit adultery. He, he who said do not commit adultery also said do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, that has be, thou hast become a transgressor of the whole law. Okay, you get, get that? He is trying to make a case that they are breaking. They are not following the royal law of love, which is what God based everything on, to love. He's saying you are guilty of the whole law because you're transgressing the most important of the two great ones. All right. Then listen to verse 12. We're almost, we're getting there fast, but we're going to get there. So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. What he's saying here is as you speak as a Christian, so do. Okay. You say you love God. So do love your fellow man too. That's how you interpret that passage. And you will be judged by the law of liberty, okay? Not the law that we're talking about written in stone, the law of liberty, which is love. When you love, you're judged by the law of liberty. You're free. And this is what he's talking about. We're gonna get to the point where it all ties up. And, and there's a law that if you try to obey it, it leads to sin because you fail at obeying it. But there's a law of liberty, the law of love, which when you obey that, you never fail. Charity never faileth. The love of God, agape love never fails. So he's comparing the two for these guys and he's saying, you're slipping back. You're not loving people as you should. You're slipping back. Verse 13, for he shall have judgment without mercy that hath shown no mercy and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. What he's saying there is, listen, my friends, if you don't have mercy on people, if you don't show love, you are not gonna be shown love or mercy. Okay, now we're ready to read the point where everybody brings it up. He says, what does it profit, my brethren, though a man says he has faith, but has not works? Can faith save him? What he's saying there is, what does it profit, my brethren, though a man says he has faith and has not love? That is, you can replace works in James all the time with love. 
What does it profit you if you say you love God, but you don't love your neighbor? Jesus talked about that too. What does he mean? This is the, really the pivotal question. What does James mean when he talks about works? Faith without works is dead. He means faith without love is dead. Okay? And now he gives an example of how this is applicable. Listen. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not of the things that are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so faith, if it has not works, if it has not love, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. I will show you my faith by the love I have. And then he says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? You see, let me just go to this, and we're going to cut reading through now because we're running out of time. But I want to I explain this now. As Christians, we have two commandments. Now, when I was LDS, I was always taught, you got to obey the commandments. And that was about the size of this table with font this big. I mean, it was just filled with commandments. But in Christianity, there are two. You might think there's just one, but there are two. The first one is to believe. That is the commandment. That is a work, actually. They came to Jesus and said, how do we do the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him that he sent. Okay. The first one is to believe. The second commandment is to love. First you believe, then you're capable of loving. Now, um, remember Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, you love one another as I have loved you, love one another. By this shall men know you are my disciples if you have love one to another. This double commandment is summarized beautifully. We have to show this final scripture, you guys. I'm sorry if it messed you up on the graphics, but listen closely. John summarized these two commandments perfectly in 1 John uh, 3, 22 through 23. He writes, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, he writes, because we keep his commandments. Okay? And, we, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now listen. He goes on, and this is his commandment. You ready? He explains what keeping his commandments are. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of the Son of Jesus Christ, on the Son Jesus Christ, excuse me, and love one another as he gave us commandment. John tells us there in 1 John, this is his commandment. They say, we follow his commandment, and this is what it is, that we believe on Jesus Christ and we love that is it. Now, I got to summarize. At the rest, in the rest of James, he gives two examples of people in the Old Testament who were saved by their works. When you say works, he means love. The first one he gives is Abraham. He uses Abraham as an example. Now, what love did Abraham show? What was the ultimate form of love that Abraham was showing? He was showing love for God above everything else when he took his son to sacrifice him. That's the first great commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart. Abraham went and he was willing to sacrifice his own son. He was willing to forgo his own emotional needs, everything, because he loved God first and foremost above everything else. That's the first and great commandment. Then James uses another example out of the Old Testament, who also by her works, by her love, actually, was saved. And who was it? Her name was Rahab. And James says, Rahab the harlot. Okay. She was a whore, okay? And she was saved not by her works. How's, how's a whore going to be saved by her works? She was saved by her faith. She was saved by her love. What did she do? Some Israelites came to Jericho and she hid them away and saved them when Jericho was being invaded. You got that? And because she loved her neighbor as herself, she showed her faith in God. The second great commandment, Rahab represents that. If you read the book of James in context with what he is saying through and through, get on your knees, pray, talk to God about it, you will see that James, James shows you that faith and love go hand in hand. They, they aren't even a hand and glove. They are, they are a hand, skin, and then blood and bones. That's how much they are one. Faith and love. 
You have someone who says they have faith and they don't love, Jesus himself says, I would question you. So right there, you have someone who has love only, they can love, but they, if it's not through faith in Christ, it's not acceptable to God. That's where we're going to leave it off. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. First time callers, please, LDS, please turn down that darn volume if you can. Uh, we're going to show the spot at the end, and let's go to the people who have been waiting. We have Brian in Syracuse. He's a first time LDS caller. Brian, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How you doing, buddy? Doing well. How are you? Great. Hey, I love your program. Thanks, man. Hey, I got a question for you, and it is about the war in heaven. Yeah. Okay, that the LDS believe. And I'm, you know, previous LDS, my wife has converted me over to being a Christian. Mm-hmm. All right. And my whole thing is the war in heaven, all right, is, from what I understand it from my upbringing, is that we were up in heaven, all of us, and then there was a split, the devil and, you know, the Lord. And after that, we came, we were shot down here on earth, and uh, we had we had a choice to make. And my, my whole problem is, I, I don't think that that's right. If, if we believe in a God that's, that's uh, you know, sovereign and all-knowing, then he would... He, he would be able to tell when we were up in heaven, if we were spirits up there, that we were good or we were bad. Right. So, Well, the Christian perspective on the war in heaven is this from the Bible. Jesus, Jesus tells people when he was on the earth, he says, I'm from above, you're from beneath. He, he quickly, he delineates, he puts a, a big demarcation line between what comes from above and what comes from beneath. Now, the Bible teaches us that heaven has an entire community. It has God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and it also has created spiritual angels that, that work in the affairs of the heavens, okay? And they come in ranks and different uh, powers, actually, according to the Bible. Then there are human beings and creatures of the earth, terrestrial beings that have flesh and bones, and there's birds and animals and human beings. These right. two are separate, okay? Well, right. there was a, so to speak, a war in, in essence because Satan rebelled against God and the dragon was thrown from heaven. Isaiah talks about it, so does Job, and so does Revelation. So that does happen. The, Joseph Smith said, hey, we were up there too. We were spirit beings, and that was taken from Platonic thought. Uh, Plato was the one who taught about the forms. The, the Hellenists uh, believe completely in a preexistence, as you can see through their, their mythology of the gods up in the things, and, and that's where right. it was taken from. And most pagan cultures believed in a preexistence at some point in time. But not biblically. Biblically, Christians know God breathed into Adam and his breath, his spirit, into the clay created a soul, a suke. And that is the creation of man. And now when men and women procreate, that spirit continues on down in the souls and the, and the procreative power through fleshly men. That's the right. explanation of it. Did that help? Right. Well, well, it does. But, you know, I mean, for like all, all the Mormon followers there, I mean... Well, you know, if, if God didn't believe in us, I mean, why, why would we have to come down here if we already proved ourselves up in heaven? Well, I mean, Latter-day Saints believe in progression as an eternal principle. You always are going to progress. And if it's not in learning and, and overcoming tests, then it's going to be in multiplying your seed and having a billion children and populating planets. But progression is a fundamental factor to Mormonism. So they believe that we were spirits created by God. He was progressing, creating more spirits. And we saw that he had a body and heavenly mothers had bodies. And we said, hey, we want to be like that. And so we got to progress from a spiritual state to a physical state. Now, the Bible says first came the physical, then came the spiritual. Joseph right. Smith taught first came the spiritual, then came the physical. So right. uh, it's just going to be dependent on what people believe. It's a great call, man. I appreciate it, Brian. Right. Hey, you know what? I love your show, Sean. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. God bless. Okay, buddy. You too. Bye-bye. We're going to Andre in Toronto, Canada. Andre, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, is this Sean Craney? It is. Wow, I was, I've been wanting to call the show for such a long time, but uh, glad you did. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you so much for your ministry. Um, I can't say you're my Christian hero because that's Jesus Christ, but you're definitely one of his coolest sidekicks. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I was watching your show recently, and I watched that the show, uh, The Man in White. Yeah. But uh, I wanted to respond. There, you had a caller that day, uh, Michael, Michael from Taylorsville. Uh huh. And uh, I realized from watching your show over the, over the past couple of months that I, it seems like you often get agnostic callers, right? 
That what? And uh, I really just had this burden. I wanted to, to share something with some of your agnostic viewers, if you don't mind. Okay. I also had a question, but if you don't mind, I just want to share something with them. Um, I find that I, I, I think a lot of agnostic people out there, they're, they're, they're searching for God, and uh, they're really looking for Him, but they can't seem to find Him. But I think the biggest issue is that a lot of agnostic people are waiting for God to be merciful and loving. They're just waiting for one day that when they die, they're going to show that mercy and uh, love. And I think that's kind of what Michael's hoping on, oh. that uh, when, he, when he dies, that God will be merciful to him. But my message to the agnostic people, or, or for people who know that there's a God, but they can't seem to figure it out yet, I just want them to know that God has already been loving and has already been merciful. And uh, the best place to see that is on the cross of Christ. Mm. And uh, I think that if they really seek to understand the cross, it's just the most beautiful thing that you could ever look at. Yeah. Um, I agree, yeah, Andre. Like, That's a really good point. And we do have yeah, a lot because, of agnostics like, I, I want them to really think about it, because how can this symbol of execution and of torture, how can it be the symbol of hope and victory and freedom for so many Christians all over the world? And it's just something so beautiful to me, you know. I just really want to share that with the agnostic people out there. Thanks, Andre. And your question? Yeah. I also had a quick question for you. Um, my quick question was just I wanted to know, uh, since you've become born again, what has been the greatest test of your faith or uh, in your life so far? Uh, well, the greatest test of my... Uh, I haven't had test of faith in the sense of wondering about God at all. Mm -hmm. But I have had a test of... of uh, relationship in terms of uh, understanding uh, modern-day Christianity. It's really mm -hmm. difficult to understand when somebody uh, has a call and they are trying to do that call and they believe in the fundamentals of Christ, how other brothers and sisters will get in public places and renounce you for mm -hmm. an assortment of reasons. How you look, I hear you, how you speak. I really hear you on that. I mean, Christians eat their young and uh, it, it can be scary. And so that has been a test of my, uh, it, of my walk, so to speak. But I need to respond in love, and I've tried in most circumstances. Mm. Oh, praise God. Oh, and if you might, I just have one more thing to say to the agnostic people. Yeah. If you don't mind. Just, just the last quick thing I wanted to say to people who call themselves agnostic is, um, I think the most important thing is, that especially if you want to try to engage in intellectualism, yeah. intellectualism is something that's kind of dangerous, I find because often we'll use a man's perspective to try to understand godly things. Yeah. But I think what really helped me to kind of understand a lot of the things that the Bible is teaching that God is trying to reveal to us yeah. is that if we look through God's perspective, if we try to just understand how God sees this world, then that just unlocks so much to us. Okay, because man. really, if you're agnostic and you believe that there's a God, then you must believe that everything revolves around that God and it doesn't revolve around man, right? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it, Andre. God bless you, my friend. Okay, definitely. God bless you too, brother. See you later. Take care. Bye-bye. Sometimes the problem with agnostics trying to see from God's perspective is they think they're God. And so they think, I would be so kind to everybody no matter what they were. And so that's difficult. I, I believe, in, to add to what Andre said, is you have to see God for who He really is. Not try to understand Him because you're not going to. He's incomprehensible. Anybody who created things from nothing and did what He did is incomprehensible. And our finite minds aren't going to get Him. But... If you try to see what that powerful creative being is like, it helps humble you and see my little pea brain is not much, is it? And then that maybe that, that uh, bifurcation helps in saying, wow, I really need him. You know, I really want to know him. I, 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 I rely on him. But hopefully that will help. We're going to Brian and Davis. He's LDS. Brian, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, how are you? I'm doing fine, Brian. How are you? Uh, this is Bob. Bob? Uh-huh. Oh, it says Brian. Our, our call, our operator sometimes, you know, whoo, yep. before the show. They're going to kill me this, for that This one. is Sean? Yeah, this is Sean. Hey, Sean. Great job on explaining uh, faith versus works. Thank you. I really enjoyed listening to that. And uh, the only comment I would make is you're right. First comes faith that we're saved. Then comes love. And a good example of that, you mentioned uh, Abraham and Rob. But also, bring it down to a, a, a little simpler level for them okay. to understand. Okay. Is when you're parents and you have your children, they have faith in you that you're going to care and provide them with all their needs. And out of your love for that child, they sense that. So in, 
in return, a child wants to respond out of love by doing good works, by obeying the, by obeying the rules of the home or obeying their mom and dad. And if, you, if mom and dad would ask them to do something, they'll do it out of love. It's not that they expect anything from that works. Yeah. Unfortunately, in my experience, that's not how it works. Because with teenagers, you can I'm ask talking them... talking children. Teenagers, teenagers... Are different teenagers? animals, aren't they? I mean, that's a horse of a different color. They are. I don't want to okay. go there right okay. now. Yeah. Okay, so well, children, I get it. Yeah. That makes sense. But basically, and that's what Jesus says, you know, when he told the apostles and everybody around him, he says, you have to be like children. Yeah. in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they did not understand what he was talking about. You have to have the faith and the love of a child to his parents. Right. And if you have that, you're in good shape. But as we get older, unfortunately, we get our own views, our own thoughts, and we start misinterpreting things that are said, and uh, we put them into our own perspective for our benefit rather than God's. And we're put here to give him the honor and glory, not ourselves. It's a good point, man. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Bob. You're welcome. God bless. Bye-bye. God bless. Bye-bye. Yeah, in addition to that, you know, the difference is when you realize what God has done for you through, and you have faith uh, and you're saved by this grace, like he said, the child responds and you do those things out of love. It is out of love, not trying to earn love, not trying to earn acceptance, but it's your actions and your works that are out of love. You don't have a problem with the person who is poor. You see them in a way because you see yourself as a broken, humble sinner, not as someone who's elevated. When you see yourself able to keep the law, you go up in estimation in your mind. You say, I'm able to obey these things. Look at me. Oh, look at that guy. He's smoking a cigarette. So, you know, look at him. I, and so you look down. But when you see yourself as to who you are relative to God, you're broken. He saves you. He saves you in that state. You're grateful. You act in love. And then you respond in love to those people who are needy. We are going, it says Bob from Ogden on line one. I'll try it. Bob, you're on Heart of the Matter. Okay. I'm here. You're on, brother. What's your question? Hey, you know, question uh, also observance. You you were talking about faith. Yeah. I think you know a lot of the difference between the Mormon faith is you have you, they, Mormons want you to put faith in their church, where God wants you to put faith in His Son Jesus Christ. Praise God, absolutely. Uh, and and he, you know the kingdom of God. The Mormons believe the kingdom of God is their church, where the Savior tells us the kingdom of God is within. Yeah. And so I think the big difference is where you put your faith. If, if you have your faith in Christ, and Christ says that if you love Christ more than anything, then you're, or if you don't love him more than anything, you're not worthy of him. Yeah. So if we put our faith in Christ, then he gives us love. If we learn to love ourselves in a Christ-like way, we'll have more love to give to others. Great point, without, Bob. Without, without loving ourselves, we don't have that love to give to others. Uh -huh. So it's all a matter of works. Uh -huh. And but with the proper faith, you develop that love, which gives you the motivation to love others, which encourages you to do better works. Thank you so much, my friend. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. God bless. Bye bye. Uh, love your show. Thanks. Love you. Love your show too. <laughs> We're losing it tonight. Hey, you know, and that is so true. All your allegiance is to the building of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, Mormons would say, well, it's Jesus' church. But Jesus never said that I want you to do this for the church. I want this for my church and this. He always said, for me, I want you to believe in me, have faith in me, trust in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man. And so he's constantly drawing you to him. Now here, LDS, you can do a little experiment. Just, just prove, prove me and prove these other callers wrong. Go to the Lord and say, show me. Show me, Lord. I believe in you. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. Please. Show me the error of my thinking. Show me the error of my ways. I'll sit back. I'll keep going to the Mormon church. I'll keep doing my home teaching. I'll keep doing all those things. But you open my eyes. Show me what the, real, what the reality is. And he will. He'll open your eyes and suddenly you'll be like, 
you know, they, what, that, and you'll just start coming to the conclusions, and that is the liberating experience where your chains are bound, and he sets the captives free. We're going to Joe and Clinton on line three. Joe, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello, Sean. This is uh, Joe. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I didn't know if uh, you're going to take it or not. Appreciate it. Uh, I just wanted to see if uh, we could go over a few quick scriptures and just kind of get your take on them. All you right. uh, grac graciously went through the faith versus work, and uh, it was an interesting interpretation that you it had there. It wasn't an interpretation. It's biblical. Uh, it's it, biblical. Was, it, was, it was a little bit of stretch. I mean, uh, if you take the Bible literally, uh, you know, to, to mix and match words and cut and paste is a little, I don't know, it, it, it's a stretch. I mean, I'm not going to... Judgment. But if you, if you Wait a minute. To, before uh, you go on, before you go on with mm -hmm. something, before you go on with something else, I want you to tell, ask me something, okay? Or answer okay. something for me. Mm -hmm. I read, a, I read a scripture to you, and it's in First John three twenty-two through twenty-three. And it, John defines, and this is his commandments, that we should believe, and love, believe and love. Those yeah. are his commandments. Now, uh -huh. you, you tell me what works you're talking about. Hey, believing and loving, I believe 100% with Thanks, you, Sean. Joe. That I they think go John hand does, in hand. too. Go ahead. Yes. Okay, and then if you just want to go to Matthew 1627. Okay. And I'm just going to share two scriptures with you. I have a whole bunch of them, but I know that time is short. So okay, you remember the 50-50 the rule, right? What's that? You, oh, you share one, I share one? Sure. Let no. Let me do that. that, that that's not no the 50-50 rule. The 50-50 rule is it's very easy. You know, I served my mission with the Amish, uh, Joe. Uh -huh. And the Amish, they wouldn't chop wood because in the Bible it says, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. And so mm -hmm. they took that one verse literally. And mm -hmm. so you're what you're doing is you're taking me to, to Matthew 17, and you're going to give me a verse. I explained earlier, you got to read context. But you're, you're going to make a little presentation here on one verse that's going to, you think, eradicate. Now, what it's going to do is it's going to cause me to have to next week go and mm -hmm. show the context of Matthew 17, whatever verse it is. But go ahead. Okay. Six, it's 1627. All right. Um, and what it says is, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his work. Okay. And what's the problem with that? I don't know how I can get more plain. What's I, don't, the, I don't know how I can get more plain. I mean, I'll get I'll get plain with you right now. All right. Okay. You want to know the context of that? Mm-hmm. When the Son of Man returns with His angels, the Scriptures teach teach that as the rapture. And what He is is He's coming to bring His bride, the Church, back up to have wine again with it for the first time since He left this earth. Now, at that point, they're going to stand, every single Christian, saved by grace, by the blood of Christ, they're going to stand on what's called the Bema seat. It's what Paul likened to the Olympic things of the silver medal, the gold medal, and the bronze. And you are going to have your works that you did tried by fire. And the things that remain, gold, silver, stone, you will be rewarded based on that according to the crowns you receive in your eternal life. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. You might get a really nice one or a really small one, but you're saved. The things that you did, the works you did as a Christian that are going to burn like wood, hay, and stubble, you won't be rewarded on. That is the judgment according to the works because the judgment for every Christian occurred on the cross, Joe. You got to understand that. He took the punishment then and there. There is no more judgment or wrath for believers. This is automatically where you have gone south and think that you're going to prove something with this singular scripture. The only thing I'm trying to prove is, um, listen, we agree on, on a lot of things. No, we don't. Uh, this, is, this is one particular thing we don't agree on. We, no, we but don't here, agree. Uh, Joe, we don't agree on most things. I'll tell you right here, now. Okay, here's, here's, here's my issue with the um, saved only by grace, is that it's kind of a cop-out. Oh, like, love you know, this. I, 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 love oh, this. Joe, a cop-out. No, hold on, hold on. And I'm I'll listening. back this up scripturally. I'll back, back this up with the scripture. Okay, go ahead. Uh, okay. But, uh, Someone cut my hair. You're trying to take my, my, my comments out of context. So basically, a lot of, uh, what I think a lot of people could do is like, hey, you know what? 
I'm saved no matter what, so I'm just going to kind of do whatever I want to in life and, and sin okay, and partake in this Joe, uh, vice and this Joe, evil. This is not a, this is, Joe, okay, I heard that point. The audience heard it. i got to make a point. I have yet mm-hmm. to meet a Christian, someone who believes that Jesus died for their sin, say, I'm now going to live like there's no tomorrow. I'm going to mm-hmm. sin like there's no tomorrow because I've been saved by grace. You know who believes that? People who live legalistic lives, they think Christians think that way because that's what they want to do. You believe that if you were saved by grace, you would go out and party it up. But when you're saved by grace, you say, how could I disappoint my father? How could I disappoint Jesus who did this for me? Do you understand that? So thus your works will be better. Exactly. And... To the level that you are That's converted true. to no, Christ. No, no, that is to true. The Paul that you said, are converted uh, my, to Christ, the level your works will be better. That's true. That, and, but wait, but wait, but what is the underpinning element that causes you to work, Joe? I agree with you. It no, is no, love for answer the, the question. What is the It is un- love for the Savior, it is grace. Okay. Because grace and works go hand in hand. It's not an either or, it's they work together. But the works is love. It is not the things you do. Rahab, how did she obey the Sabbath day? She was, she's mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the, in the hallmark of fame. This harlot, how, what did she do in her works to save herself, Joe? She did nothing. She loved her neighbor as herself, and she had faith in the God she didn't even know. See, yes, after a sinful life, she was able to repent through the atonement of Christ. Will you read this? This is, what are you talking about? Is that in the Joseph Smith version? It is, that is absolutely. And let me tell you something, Joe. If you think it's just me, you ask any Christian scholar from Billy Graham to Chuck Smith to, to any of them, they will all side with this presentation and every Christian understands it. It's only the Mormons. It's only the Mormons who say grace after all that you can do. Grace and works. It's only the Mormons. Listen, it's not only the Mormons. I'll, 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 I'll back this up with two scriptures really quick. Um, let's, let's just go out of Matthew Out of 470,000. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Uh, Matthew seven twenty one. Okay, this is... Okay, Christ now we're getting into saying. the Sermon on the Mount, and we spent, exactly. I think, Christ himself. 17 weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you want an exegetical study, before you comment on this, go and just... just Listen to what the Sermon on the Mount is talking about. You are pulling out something now that has no contextual uh, relevance to our discussion. I can tell you that before I even go to it. I'll do it to entertain you, but I'm just telling you, it has no relevance to what you're talking about. Seven what? Okay, if if the words of the Seder himself do not have any uh, relevance to me, that's fine if that's your interpretation. Who's he speaking to, Joe? Wait, 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 wait. Wait, Wait, first of all, who is he speaking to on the Sermon on the Mount? If we're going to talk about relevance, who's he speaking to? Do you know? Is he not, is he not speaking to his followers? He, no, he is talking to his disciples. He's okay. training his, his disciples. Followers. What? Which are his followers, his disciples of followers. No, we're talking about, uh, in, in, in Mormon language, we're talking about his apostles. He's training them. This is not to the general public. These were the words he taught them to go out and build upon and so that they could understand who they were. Don't you, and this is the problem with you now going to the Sermon of the Mount and applying the words of Jesus, which are true, but applying it in this circumstance. But Sean, in, in, five, in five one, Matthew 5, 1, he said, And seeing the multitudes, he went up to a mountain, and when he was sat, his disciples came unto him. Who came he to him? He saw the multitudes. Wait, they came okay. unto him, he his saw, disciples. Wait, okay, right. The multitude, he saw them, and he got away up into a mountain, and his disciples came to him. His disciples okay. are used interchangeably with his apostles. And they came okay. to not the multitudes. His disciples came to him. Uh, let's the, get to the point here. because No, no, no. This is the point. What, because what, does, you, he, what no. does he mean in 721 that says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay. But he that doeth the will of my Father okay. which is in heaven. Okay, we'll go to jo- Oh, are we done? Can we go over? No. <laughs> We're out of time, John. I'm answering that next week, dude. You've lost on okay, this one I'll call you, big time. Okay, I'll All call right. you, man. See you later. Seriously. We're over. <laughs>